Welcome back, Cloud Unfiltered listeners. We appreciate your loyalty, and we're so glad you've tuned in to join us for another episode. You know, we recently had a guest on talking about security, and we felt like we were headed in the right direction with that conversation. Some of the things that have been coming up with our newly configured workspaces, which is to say from home, it's bringing up some challenges, and um, we we felt like we were, again, we're, we're headed in a good direction. So, we're having another security guest on, and we hope you enjoy it. His name is Eric Kedrosky. He's the CISO at Sunrise Security. Welcome, Eric. Hello, everybody. Hey. You're not going to be covering the same stuff for sure that we covered last time because we were talking about our own product last time, StealthWatch. <laughs> but we're excited up to hear your perspective on some of the different things that you bring to the table. Pete, welcome to the show as well. How are things hey, in Michigan? Things are, we've got, uh, you know, it's, it's summer in Michigan is the best time to be here. Oh, I've never been. Yeah, the weather, you know, we, we get highs in the mid-80s when you're getting triple digits there in Southern California. So, yeah, it's, it's nice here this time of year. That sounds so nice. And where are you, Eric? I'm coming from uh, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. Okay. What's summer like there? Summer is definitely not as hot as uh, California, but it's been a pretty great summer so far. So lots of great weather and lots of whales around to, to go out and see. Nice. Oh, that's cool. And I can hear that little bit of Canada in your voice. You didn't just move there. You must have been raised there. No, born and raised in Canada. There we go. Well, welcome, sir. So, um, you know, we always talk in advance of these shows. We look at what uh, you specialize in and we, we think about what we'd like to learn from you. And, and honestly, Pete had the best question. So, Pete, why don't you start this episode? Well, sure. Thanks, Allie. So, Eric, I wanted to, to sort of frame the conversation because this is really kind of a a different perspective on security that most people don't think about when they think about security in the cloud. So I thought if you wouldn't mind, if you could define for people who might not be familiar, define the AWS shared responsibility model, which of course we see on the other clouds as well, but to use them as sort of a frame of reference. And, and talk about the the difficulties that then creates that your company, Sonrai, helps people solve. Sure, Pete. Well, I mean, the basic way I like to explain the AWS uh, shared security model, or really the way that any of the clouds do it, is that the cloud providers are responsible for securing the infrastructure, the hardware, the whatnot that the services run on that you use. But on top of that, it is your responsibility to actually secure the things that you build and run for your customers or for your business or what have you. And the way I kind of explain this to people is they say, well, I'm in the cloud, am I secure? And my answer is yes and no. And the analogy I like to use, it's like, you know, putting on a bicycle helmet. You know, the manufacturers out there want to make sure that you're as secure as possible, but you have to do your part to make sure that, that you do securely, secure yourself properly and use those things in, in an effective way. Right. That helmet can't be sliding off the back of your head as many people wear it. It needs to be nice and snug under your chin, down over your forehead to protect you, Right. And exactly. And, and I like to give a nod to the to the vendors as well, because, it, you know, it really is in their best interest to make you secure. And they have built a lot of security into their services and into their products to make it easy for you to do, because working in the cloud, you have a hard enough job just doing that. So they go an extra long way to make sure that you can do things securely. So then among the things that you, the customer, are responsible for, again, using AWS as the example, are things like the identity and access management roles, so your IM roles. Talk about those a little bit in the, the niche that, that you at Sunrise have sort of figured out that people need help with. So if you think of your IAM model, these are your basic identities. And in the traditional world, these were really your users for the most part. 
in the cloud model, you know, we have this notion of uh, non-human identities and human identities. And so you look at non-human identities, and those are identities that act on behalf of a person. Again, in the, in the old data center model, you might have scripts that ran or, or service things that ran, but in the cloud, this can take on a much, much broader and greater uh, things that are running. These can include pieces of compute, so your VMs or your EC2 instances. These can be roles. These can be services such as serverless functions. These can be a wide range of things. And not only do they span the scope of, say, one account, they can span across all of your cloud environments. And then you step back a little bit and these things can start to span or touch uh, multiple cloud environments as well. So the problem went from being a rather localized problem to a very large problem, both in breadth and depth. And then you throw in the extra complexity of multiple clouds and this becomes a really difficult problem to solve. So among the things that I really love that you can find on, on your website is this idea of identity risk monitoring and access graphing. So what's that look like? So identity risk monitoring is really, it's like identity governance. It's, it's answering some basic questions. The first and foremost is like, what identities exist in my environment? And this might sound like a really trivial question to ask, but it really is a difficult one. And this isn't what you, know, you think it was or what you configured it to be. This isn't maybe what your auditors have checked off on their boxes. This is as it truly exists in your system. Because as we know, I mean, there's lots of hands in the system with the cloud and things are getting spun up and created all the time. So I have a question to go back though to the definition of non-human identities or non-people identities. I don't understand and I represent people who don't understand on the show, that's <laughs> my role. Have they always been a security challenge ever since the cloud was started or is this something that they're just becoming a problem now or a challenge now? Well, I think these non-human identities have, have existed in some way, shape, or form, you know, even taking it back to the, the data center days. But in the cloud, because it can take on so many more forms, it's not just a script that you run, per se. It could be a service running as you. It could be a role that you can assume into another account and into another account, into another account. It could be a piece of compute that has a role. So now you have much more things that can have an identity and it becomes very difficult to track them. So, you know, it becomes very complex in your environment. And this is why it's become more and more of a risk and a, a focus of security these days. So what happens if someone is trying to exploit this vulnerability? Say they get into one of these non-human identities, what can they do with it? Well, potentially, I mean, they can do whatever the identity has, has the ability to do, the permissions to do. Um, okay. So this, if this identity was used, let's say it was a role that was used to access sensitive data and a malicious actor were to gain control of that identity and use that, they would then be acting on behalf of the role or as the role really, and then access that sensitive data. And what makes it really difficult is, is that it's very hard to track kind of the who done it. So trying to track that back to see what happened, you're seeing something that actually looks normal. This role is supposed to be doing that thing. But if you're not monitoring it to the right granularity or the right depth to understand what is you know, normal and what is different, you might not even detect it. And that thing could go completely undetected. Well, and what about, so besides stealing, say, you know, confidential information that people are always worried about, what about edge devices? Could, a, could someone theoretically hack a non-human identity and take control of, say, a traffic light or some other, something else that's controlled by edge compute devices? 
Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the data governance side of things, who can get to my data and what can they do with it. But there's a lot of other things that roles do. Roles are used to spin up infrastructure. Roles are used to take down infrastructure. So whatever that role can do, whatever it has the permissions to do in your environment, it can do. So if it wanted to spin up a bunch of servers and blow up your cost, it could do that. If it wanted to terminate a bunch of your servers to shut down a service, it could do that as well. It could change your routing of your networks. It can do basically whatever you could do in the cloud that it has the permission to do. Is it common? Do, do these things happen often that we don't hear about? Like, is, or is this a unique kind of attack, this non-people identities attack? No, I think this is just, you know, it's another form of how uh, a malicious actor gets around your environment. And it's really a, a, a modern play on, on the, classic, uh, the classic principle. You know, someone got into your environment they get an account, they try to get a more powerful account, and they use that to do what they wish to do. This is just another version of that in now in the cloud. So, so evil. Don't the, care for it. The practical example that I like to use in this space is the, and I won't name the bank, but there was a major U.S. bank last summer that had a hacker gain access to 100 million credit card applications. And, and the way that that happened was is that they didn't have their firewall rules set up on a VM correctly. So the hacker got into that VM and was then able to assume the roles associated with that VM. And among the roles associated with that VM was to gain access to 700 S3 buckets that contained the raw data of the credit card applications. So all this hacker had to do was take take the permissions that were in the VM metadata, copy them to her local laptop credentials directory, and then all of the roles, all of the, the permissions that that VM had, now she had on her command line interface. So it was, they, that person was able to list all buckets and they were able to read all the objects in those buckets. So it, it's that kind of thing where, Part of the problem was that the firewall rules weren't set up correctly, so the front door of the VM was was incorrect. But then the IAM roles were set up so liberally that instead of just getting hacked for, say, 10 million credit card applications, it was all 100 million applications. So this is why I love this idea of access graphing so that you can kind of visually see the repercussions of perhaps having an IAM role that's too liberal. So is, is that the kind of thing that, that your customers get help with, with your tool set? That's exactly it, Pete. Um, you know, we help, we call it the effective permission. So it's what can this identity truly do? And again, I come back to not what I think I configured it to do, not what we kind of think it can do, what can it truly do? And if we, you know, use your example that you just gave, I mean, it started as a user, so an identity, an identity assumed a role, so now you're a non-human identity, and that role started doing other things. So what we do is we map it right from the user right to the very end point that we can find. And this gives you your true effective permission. So if you were looking at our graph, for example, you could see that this user over here has access to these 700 data buckets over there, as well as has the ability to perform all these actions on those data buckets end to end. And then furthermore, you know, if you're looking at it from the flip side, so, you know, after this terrible thing happened, um, you would then be able to see what that person did, uh, what the actions that they did as well. So you begin to get the, this full picture of not just what can happen, 
but what did happen as well. So there's an accounting here that goes into this as well then. So there's, there's some historical, there's some historical tracking that you do there as well. Yeah. So not only do we map, you know, the, the effect of permissions end to end, but we build a picture of, you know, as I like to say, you know, what can somebody do? Because in a lot of cases, when roles are over permissioned, I mean, you as a user, Pete, you may not even realize that you have the ability to do this because of an over permission. Sure. Um, so we, we map that. So that's the, what can you do? But we also map the activity through our, our product, through basically change detection and monitoring to say, you know, Pete can do this. And then, oh my goodness, this morning at 4 a.m., Pete just did this, and this is the path by which he did it by. Pete, you need to knock it off. You sound like you're a bad actor. It sounds like I am a bad actor. <laughs> so, Eric, when, when people are, are doing, I think everyone's obviously doing their best, no matter what mistakes they make in configuring their security environments, what are the most common mistakes people are making when managing non-people identities in the cloud? Well, I think the first most common mistake is allowing an over, overly permissive identities. And, you know, this is very complex. Like, it, it sounds kind of trivial to talk about sometimes, but, like, if you're in it, it is very complex if you're working in one cloud, let alone trying to work across multiple clouds, which most customers are, whether they know it or not sometimes, right? So what tends to happen is, is that, you know, you're trying to build something very quickly, and you put it together, and it breaks, and then all of a sudden, maybe the business is impacted or your delivery dates, you know, oh, are we going to meet that delivery date? So you're under this rush to fix it. And what's the easiest way to fix something? Well, let's just give it more permission. Let's just do oh, that. Sure. Right. So that's something that, that, that commonly happens. Right. And another case is just because of the complexity, sometimes that the, the administrators of this just, just don't know. You know, they don't know that if you take this role and this role with these permissions and you put them together, you know, you get what we like to call a toxic combination. So on their own, you know, permissions A gets you to do some things and permissions A, B are separate and separate is fine. But when they're put together, let's say in the same group or added, you know, the policies are added to that, to that uh, identity that we get this toxic combination where, where you have the potential of something bad can happen. So that's really one of the first common mistakes we see a lot of. And that's a lot of the times due to the complexity of the cloud and you know trying to make sense of it all. So you need to think twice before just passing out permission. You need to look at your software, you need to look at what platforms are are working together, all those things. Yeah, you have to look at how it's you know how it's being used and, and you have to have the tools to test it. You have to have the tools to map that sort of end-to-end -end effective permission. You know, another common mistake that we really see is what I like to call lost identities. So you know, these are identities that are often created or maybe modified, but then forgotten about. So they're just kind of left around the environment. You know, maybe you were working on uh, building something and you created a role and then you decided not to do that, but you didn't delete the role. Or you had a, you know, a nice lockdown role and you made it a bit overly permissive to test something. And then it got forgotten about and never used again in, in the context of which you were making it. But they're still there. They're hanging around the environment and they're just kind of waiting for someone to come along and use them. And, and I guess that leads in really to the third common mistake we see is these identities being used for unintended purposes. So if we take the non-malicious approach to it, so you've got this identity that's been created. And the example I like to give is a role. Um, and it's sitting in the environment and it can do a certain amount of things. And you're a person creating something and you say, well, I'm going to use this role because it's available to me and it looks like it'll get me what I need. Well, sure, it got you what you, you need, but like what, at what cost did that come? 
you know, did it just give your, your application, your instance, your whatever, full access to sensitive data that it maybe shouldn't have? Or on the flip side, if you look at a malicious actor, if these things, these are, these are gold, you know, these are nuggets of gold for these malicious actors, because I mean, you find an overly permissive role that nobody's really watching. It's not really used anywhere, but still alive. They're just going to pick it up and run with it. And that's a lot of the scenarios that you see is they're running with these things that they just found in the environment. And that's perfect for them because one, first and foremost, they didn't have to do anything. They just found this thing and just decided to start to use it. And secondly, it can really hide their actions, right? It's not this user going around touching data. It's a piece of compute that maybe is used to touching data so that when it when it gets seen, it doesn't even fire off any flags or anything. So, you know, that's really one of the big ones we see as well. Pete, does that raise questions for you? Well, just the thing it makes me think is going back to that bank example, they didn't know it happened. Right. They they only they only knew they only discovered that that breach happened when the hacker happened to post some of the data on GitHub. Because it was yes. using a valid permission, yes. as far as the system was concerned, it was using a valid permission for those S3 buckets. Yeah. So I wonder if that's part of the problem is oh, not not people not being aware as much, but as you were talking about non-malicious and malicious attacks, I wonder, do you have a difficult time when you're selling your solution, convincing people that there are malicious actors? I mean, we all know, in theory, there's malicious actors out there, but I don't think anybody thinks they're coming for them. Is that a hard pitch or do you feel like people have an appropriate awareness and concern that they're going to? I think we all know they're out there, but everybody thinks someone else is going to get hacked. We are not going yeah. to. It's a funny thing. I mean, I've been in the security industry since right out of school, so almost 20 years now. And I would say that over the time, you know, nowadays you get more people that are aware that it could happen to them. Um, than you were before. I think a lot of people thought that it was this spy on spy and, you know, no, our data doesn't matter, right? I, heard, I hear that a lot. Our data doesn't matter. Why would anybody want to come after us? But I think nowadays, and, and you can't help, I mean, it's all over the media, it's all over the news, just pick up a paper over the last two or three years and it's everywhere. I think you start to see a lot more organizations being more aware of these things and sort of more cognizant of the roles that they need to play. But at the end of the day, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm really surprised that when you read some of these articles and you, and you listen to them and they, just, they still say, well, I didn't know what could happen to me. And it just leaves you to wonder. It's like, yeah, it did, right? Right, right. And that's really relevant right now, at least for me, because I'm into running and biking and Garmin has, over the past four days, been down. And they originally released an announcement saying, oh, we're just updating our software but that did not really ring true for me because they know their audience is people who are exercising over the weekend. They did this, oh, this has happened over the weekend. And that they depend on their watches to upload their data to the internet so everybody can know how far you ran or biked or did whatever this weekend. And then we all talk about it on our, on our apps on our phone. You know, we get on Strava and, oh, I saw you, you know, I saw you bike 75 miles on Saturday morning, great job. There has been such a meltdown over this, and I don't think probably the folks at Garmin were thinking that they would be attacked, because who wants a bunch of runner data and biker data? But that's not what's happening. It's a ransomware attack. Um, at least that's the theory that's going around. There's been screenshots from leaked from within Garmin saying you know, that, it's a, that it's a ransomware attack. And um, they're asking for $10 million, and that it's I actually wrote down some notes about who it is. It's supposed to be a gang of Russian hackers tied to the evil corporation, which sounds very cartoony, I have to say. They really need to think of a better name. 
and they run some ransomware called Wasted Locker. And that is apparently the deal that's going down right now. And uh, it still hasn't been completely resolved, if you trust my watch that is not uploading data still. But um, I just, I think those folks probably were not thinking that there was a lot of reason for them to be hacked, because who'd want that data? But it's not the data even in this case. It's just that they've tied up their systems and said, you're not accessing, accessing any of this. Yeah. So yeah, that's, you know, I don't, I don't really know what's going on at, at, at Garmin, but I mean, I think it's a, it's a good example of the, if something were to be going on, that whole thinking of it may not be us, you know, why would someone want our data? But I think the, the point in this is, is that there's a lot of different reasons why people do this. And it's not always a theft of, of data, of sensitive information. We hear a lot about that because those are the big ones that hit the news. But, you know, really, you see companies of all sizes, shapes and forms getting hit in negative ways these days. And a lot of times there's a lot of them that you don't hear about because they're just so small. But, you know, if you think about a small business or a mom and pa shop that gets, you know, uh, attacked and shut down for a couple of days and has to pay, you know, $10,000, you're not, that's not going to make the, you know, the front page news, but it's happening. Um, right. And, and these are one of the things that are, that are going on. It's just sort of a, a state of where we are, I guess. Yeah, I think it's genius. I think whoever did it's genius. Yeah, because stealing our data would have been worthless. But um, tying up these systems has created a global panic among people who depend on Garmin. And my understanding was it also shut down a bunch of flights because there's apparently, I don't know if it's commercial airliners, but a certain class of, of planes that relies on Garmin flight. They have a, a tool there that they just had to ground these planes. So Interesting. So I digress. Pete, sorry, I'll let you get back to some serious questions. Well, th those are those are all serious questions, right? <laughs> that it's it's not just about theft, but it can be about other things as well. Eric, I was wondering, do you see out there? Do you see there's kind of two extremes here to me when we talk about these non-human identities. There's there's where you have very few of them, and you like like literally have a lot of wild cards that are giving too much access. And then there's the other extreme is you have a lot of them that give very specific access, right? So you have this proliferation and now how do you manage all of them? So what do you think is more common these days? Is it the few that give too much access or is it a lot of them that now I have too many of them to manage? And, and what are the sort of the, the things that people are grappling with in those cases? I think one of the ones is, is the, the sheer numbers of them. You know, you see in, in most environments that I've seen and most people we talk to, you just see a vast number of these things. And you would think maybe in a big company, it's a lot, but I've seen some not so big companies that have a lot. And, you know, you, you start digging in and almost always it started on the right path. Well, why do you have so many? Well, you know, we really wanted to do this right. We really wanted to lock this down. And then when you start talking to people about it, you're like, well, why is it then that this is so, you know, overprivileged or toxic combination or, you know, not least privileged or what have you? And it comes back to those sort of mistakes that we talked about earlier, right? It's like, well, we tried to do that. It didn't work. So we did this. So you almost see you start off with a large number that starts to sort of gravitate to what you were talking about with the small number, except now it's a big number of them with a lot of permission that it probably doesn't need. And, and that creates like a perfect storm, right? So not, not only a handful that you can manage and then say, oh, darn, we really need to fix that. It's a bunch of stuff all over the place that's difficult to manage. And as well, now we have to determine, is it overprivileged? How is it overprivileged? If I try to fix the permissions, what am I going to break? All those questions start to come into play. So it becomes a real, you know, a real nightmare uh, for your security and, and operations teams. 
Well, in my own personal experience with that, the, the project that I did last summer, I had 12 individual Lambda functions doing different things, and I had uh, IAM role for each individual one, so that as each Lambda function spun up, it only had access to the other services that it absolutely needed to have access to. And just to give you an idea of, of the scope of that, I had about 1,600 lines of cloud formation for my infrastructure as code, and half of them were defining the IAM roles and permissions. Yeah. So are you saying that was secure, Pete? Well, it was, I happened to start it right when that bank hack happened, and I thought, okay, let me go the extreme, <laughs> this, this extreme of one role, you know, one role, one policy, per serverless function and let's let's see what that means in terms of my overall number of lines of infrastructure as code and i was surprised it ended up being 50% but you know yeah. it, that's how it ended up being and you think about it this way i mean you know through through my years of experience it starts off like that so but let's say Pete you grow and your team grows and that project gets a few more people or you hand sure. that project off to somebody else now you've got 12 roles, you've got all these lines of code, you've probably got someone that, that wasn't involved with you in building it that maybe doesn't understand what you did, maybe there wasn't a clean handoff, and that's when you start to see the mistakes come in, yep. right? Oh, one of Pete's roles is great for accessing this thing, I'm just gonna use it for my thing over here, not knowing the full scope of what that role does, problem. Oh shoot, we changed something and that role broke. I'm just gonna give it some more permissions and now it's working fine and nobody's yelling and screaming at me just to fix it. Or we don't need that role anymore. We just created this other role. So now you've got 13 or 14 roles with two of them that are lost until someone comes along. And that's really how it happens. It's just, you know, a matter of fact of of, you know, uh, I guess daily life in an IT team or a DevOps team these days. Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm a listener, I'm hearing this conversation, I have an IT environment I'm responsible for, and I'm starting to shake and get sweaty thinking about my very permissive environment. You know, you've talked about a lot of mistakes folks often make. What would be kind of the advice you'd give other than come to Sonrai, we can help you. That's obviously, but what else can people do as far as governance and policy to, to, to clean up their environment and create a more secure situation? Well, I mean, I'm going to give a bit of a spoiler alert here. There's no such thing as a silver bullet. You know, no matter what anybody tells you, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. And like everything done well, there's, you know, blood, sweat, and often tears that goes into it. So, you know, no matter what you're working in, no matter how sophisticated your cloud, it's, it's going to take work. And, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, I like to come out right out front and say that. There's nothing that's just going to flick a switch that's going to fix everything. But really what you need to start to do is the first thing is you need to identify all of those non-human identities. And again, it's not a paper-based exercise. You need to go into your systems and start looking cloud by cloud, account by account at those identities and get a, a real sort of understanding of what there really is. And what, as I like to say, what truly exists in your environment. And then the next thing you have to try to do is map the effective permissions of, the, of those identities. And so what do I mean by that? For every single identity, you have to identify end to end exactly what that identity can do. Again, not what it was configured to do on paper or in design or what your audit thinks it can do, but you need to map it end to end to see what it truly can do. And you need to do that at all times because things change very quickly in the cloud. So just because you mapped it today, maybe someone went in and made a change and added a different policy or updated a policy or did something in your system. Is that effective permission tomorrow the same as it is today? 
And then you look at the data side of it. So that's sort of the identity governance side of it. You, you have to say, well, you know, we're looking at sensitive data. What data can those identities access? You know, that potential, what can they access is the first question you have to ask. And you have to understand how they, in which context they can access it. And sometimes it's not a one-to-one -one path. And sometimes there's multiple ways by which an identity can access a sensitive resource, sensitive data, whatever. And you have to map all of those out. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, it can do that. Did it do that? And you have to be right. able to identify, did it actually do it? Like, just because, you know, Ali and Pete have this role that can access all of Cisco's sensitive data, did they actually do it or not? So you have to be able to attest to it, and then you have to be able to attest if it did it. And then if it did do it, you have to be able to say, well, what did it actually do? And again, you have to be doing that at all times. And so it's really getting this whole picture of your identity and data governance models to say, you know, what's going on in my environment at, at all times? And when something changes, how am I alerted to something that gets changed? Because you can't sit there in a room every single day mapping out every single identity. It's just, it's not going to happen. That sounds exhausting. Oh my God. Kudos to the, all the CISOs out there who are trying to protect everybody's data. That just... <laughs> Sounds exhausting, but I guess the uh, the payoff is the peace of mind, right? You can sleep at night knowing that while you're sleeping, there aren't Russian hackers trying to get at your stuff. Yeah, and I mean, as a, as a CISO, there's there's business implications to that as well, right? So when you're dealing with partners or, or customers, you go through these third-party vendor assessments, and they they send their auditors in, their security auditors, and they ask you a lot of questions, and a lot of them are around these topics. And they want you to be able to stand up and attest as a business, as the business leader for security, that you know what all your identities are, that you know what all your identities can do that only the identities that you say can access their data can access their data in the ways that you tell them. So there's a real business implication to this as well, because you, you have to do that. You're making that commitment to a customer, to a partner, to whomever. And that's one of the things that, you know, I know keeps CISOs up at night as well. It's like being able to, to live up to those business expectations, not just the technological expectations. Is there an industry, this is kind of a weird question, but is there a particular vertical that is prone to this that you're like oh we're hearing from from these guys again yeah th this industry these guys are always they're always having problems where or is it just something that's basically even across all industries where they're all i mean I th it's even it's even across all industries i mean yeah. the cloud might be you know a bunch of years old but it's still very 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 new to a lot of people and it doesn't matter how big you are and how sophisticated you are and how big a security team and budget you have we see some of the same problems in those organizations as we do as some of the startup companies that are born in the cloud. It's just something that everybody's going through right now. And so there's no one particular industry that's doing it you know, better or worse than any other. All right. So if you're out there listening, struggling with security, you're not alone. There are many, many others like you. Pete, you got any more questions for Eric? No, I'm up? good. This was a really nice exploration of a corner of security that I don't, I think a lot of people don't think about. I mean, it used to be when everybody was on, you know, all old Unix systems 25 years ago and you were adding permissions to groups and that was it. It's it's an order of magnitude more complicated with cloud identity access. And I think Eric's done a really nice job of, of laying out what some of the implications of that are. Anything else for you, Eric? No, I'd just like to thank you for uh, having me on your show. It's, it's great to be able to talk about this and the, you know, to bring this awareness to people because it really is a very important thing that I think organizations need to consider that we oftentimes don't see them considering. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Pete, as always. 
for helping ask the smart questions. Yeah, this and, was a fun uh, one. Yeah, it sure was. We'll talk to you again soon, Eric, I hope. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.